Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's uh, bow our heads and ask His guidance and direction on our study. Father, we're thankful for Your Word and all that it reveals to us. We're reminded that Scripture says that all Scripture has been breathed out by You and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Father, your word comes to us down through the ages and has been preserved through your sovereignty so that we know that what is here is revealed to us that we might learn to think about life as you would have us to think about life and that these people, these situations, these events have been recorded for us, recorded down through the ages that we might be encouraged, that we might uh, learn, that we might come to understand who you are and what you are doing in our lives as we see this, these patterns down through the ages. So, Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we might uh, be encouraged and strengthened in our study spiritually and that we might focus on your word, and God the Holy Spirit will make this profitable to our spiritual growth. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Kings, Second Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. This morning we're going to do more of an overview than we've done the last uh, several uh, <clears throat> Sundays because we're at that kind of a transition point within the structure of, of the narrative of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. Beginning in um, 2 Kings chapter 2, we have the, at the, towards the end, we have the uh, inauguration the anointing of Elisha's ministry, the beginning of his ministry. And as we go through these chapters, from the end of chapter 2 down through chapter 13, we will see a number of different things occur in his ministry, things that seem uh, rather odd or unusual to us at times, and other things that just seem like they are just historical narrative, just things that happened in the history of Israel. And so if you are reading this as a a believer and you're not familiar with the significance of these events, it's very easy to think of this as just something that happened uh, about uh, 2,500, 2,800 years ago. 
but it's hard to see how this has real significance or relevance uh, to us today. And as I pointed out in my prayer prior to the beginning of class, if all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and structure and righteousness, that applies to this. As a matter of fact, when Paul wrote that to Timothy, there really wasn't much of a New Testament canon yet, and he wrote it in a context where he is reminding Timothy of all of his spiritual growth and spiritual development, which occurred through the teaching of his mother and his grandmother, as they taught him the Scripture. And the Scripture in context couldn't mean the New Testament at all because at the time Timothy was growing up under the uh, tutelage of his mother and grandmother, uh, they didn't have a New Testament at all. So in Paul's mind in uh and 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, the focus is really more on the Old Testament. And so today we often find Christians who say, ah, the Old Testament, why do we go there? Uh, that just has to do with the Mosaic Law. It doesn't really have anything to do with us today. And that's just borderline blasphemy because all of it has application for today, and much of it is important for us because uh, it teaches us about the character of God. It teaches us about his person. As we see his dealings with uh, Israel in the Old Testament, they parallel his dealings with us in the New Testament. There are differences, of course, because of the there's a different dispensation. As believers today, we have different uh, spiritual assets than they had in the Old Testament. They were under the Mosaic Law and a system of sacrifices. We live in a in a dispensation of the completed uh, work of Christ on the cross, and there are those distinctions. But God never changes, and the way God deals with His creatures. Uh, doesn't really change except where there are dispensational, uh, dispensational distinctives. And also much of what we see in the Old Testament is, is designed to set up certain patterns. Uh, we might even use the term a paradigm. It's not that God always does things the same way, but we see through these patterns that are repeated over and over again, and then we see those patterns depicted again in the New Testament we can learn uh, many different things, many different principles about God in those patterns. And what we see in First Corinthians, I mean, uh, excuse me, Second Kings chapter three, is the transition from the ministry of Elijah to Elisha. And in many ways, Elisha's ministry is very similar to Elijah's, but there are also some distinct and important differences. Elijah had approximately six or seven miracles, whereas uh, Elisha has, depending on how, how, what you attribute a miracle to be, how you define it, has anywhere from um, 15 to 18 different miracles. There's a, a difference in the orientation of Elijah's ministry. He is mostly out of the land, out of the spotlight. He's in... Uh, uh, down by the book Kareth, which is in the land, but he is isolated there. Then he is in Zarephath, which is in the land of the Phoenicians. And then he later he will go down to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And so he is mostly out of the land, and he has a ministry where he is directly confronting Ahab with divine judgment because of idolatry. Whereas when we come to Elisha, the ministry is more oriented to restoration 
and blessing of God and the grace provision of God, Elisha's ministry is almost all always in the land of Israel. And so it is always oriented towards this this uh, ministry of, of, of blessing. Another pattern that we'll see and have to develop as we go through this is the uh, parallels between Elijah and Elisha as a foreshadowing to the ministries of John the Baptist and Jesus. We are all familiar with the fact that there is a clear scriptural um, pattern that is uh, drawn between Elijah in the Old Testament and John the Baptist. But just as uh, Elisha is going to live in a time, he's not isolated as Elijah was. He has around him a community of believers, the sons of the prophets. He focuses more on blessing. He has various miracles that are very similar to those that Jesus performs. Uh, in many ways, Elisha's ministry is a forerunner and a pattern of what the Lord Jesus Christ will do when when he comes. So it is important to note uh, these patterns and these parallels. So Elijah and Elisha stand at the center of the history of Israel between Moses in approximately 1400 B.C. and the Lord Jesus Christ who comes and whose ministry is approximately uh, A.D. 30. And as we look at the the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, there is this explosion of the miraculous that is distinct from the period before them. There are a few miracles that occur between Moses and Elijah, and there are a few that occur after Elisha, but there is this just explosion of miraculous activity during their two ministries, and they stand at a at a critical juncture in the in the history of Israel. So these two prophets have a unique and a vital role in the history of God's revelation of himself to Israel and to us. Elijah's ministry ended in 2 Kings 3. Elisha's ministry begins at the end, rather at the end of 2 Kings 2, and Elisha's ministry begins at that point and extends until his death in 2 Kings chapter uh, 13. Together their ministries are to the northern kingdom of Israel, which is shaded in uh, the lighter green there on the map uh, up on the screen, uh, not to the southern kingdom of Judah. They are prophets to the northern kingdom, and their ministries cover a period of approximately 60 years, maybe a little more. We're not sure how long Elijah's ministry lasted but it's a period of at least 60 years during one of the most uh, spiritually dark periods in the history of Israel and one of the periods of political chaos as well as economic depression. It is a time of increasing paganism where paganism controlled the leadership of the nation and paganism controlled the culture of the northern kingdom. During this time, the believers in the northern kingdom not only had to endure, along with everybody else, the economic judgment of God on the northern kingdom as part of what God had promised in the Mosaic law, that if you disobey me, I will do these things. Part of that included famine and drought and other aspects of economic collapse. Not only did the believers have to endure that along with all of the 
other unbelievers in the northern kingdom and the drought and disease and famine that went along with that. But they also had to handle the pressure of living in a pagan culture that constantly sought to push them and force them to conform to the pagan worship of the Baals and the Asherim. Uh, beyond that, there was the political pressure of persecution where you have uh, uh, Jezebel's hit squads going out throughout the land trying to find and uh, identify the believers and then executing them. So it is a time of both divine discipline that they're having to endure plus the external pressures from uh, the pagan culture to conform as well as persecution. Now, this has a lot of application for us, as we'll see as we go through these chapters, because in a similar way, in our nation, we are facing economic decline and possibly economic disaster. We need to prepare for circumstances that indeed may be much worse than what's going on uh, right now. We have government policies that continue to devalue the dollar, continue to multiply at an unbelievable rate the debt of the nation, which is a violation of establishment principles as identified uh, within the scriptures. And we continue to uh, have all manner of corruption, both in the private sector as well as the public sector. We have political programs, bailouts that don't actually go for their own purposes, but as we see in the news that much of that money is spent on things that uh, do not create jobs whatsoever. It's one, one of the uh, largest uh, amounts of distribution of cash to promote many different private, personal, political uh, programs around and has very little to do with the promotion of of uh, jobs or the development of new jobs or encouraging the private sector and encouraging uh, business. So that's just going to lead to increased economic uh, instability. And then with the devaluation of the dollar and inflation, which is really just a hidden tax, it's one of the most uh, horrendous uh, taxes, hidden taxes that come come along and erode our purchasing power, uh, we basically become slaves to uh, these policies more and more. And that's just in terms of the economics, not too different from what was going on in, in Israel, except what they had was much worse. We also see the increasing pressure from a pagan culture around us to conform to the relativistic secular ideals that are promoted through education, through the media, through film, through television, through peer pressure. All of these things are there, and if you're a parent raising children today, you have a job that is a thousand times more difficult than when you were uh, growing up because the country is much more uh, overtly pagan than it was even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, so that it, it is you hear politicians and others stand up and say things today that you would never have heard even 20 years ago, and now they feel the comfort to say those things because the culture has uh, changed so much. So we have the pressure from a pagan relativistic uh, postmodern uh, worldview, the uh, <clears throat> where multiculturalism and relativism has become so embedded within the thought structure of of the institutions of our nation that 
people in leadership can no longer look accurately at the things that are going on because it may be politically incorrect to do so. We can no longer, we no longer have a nation that's willing to admit the inherent violence that is promoted within the Quran and the Haditha, which are the two, uh, most, uh, holy books in, in Islam. Uh, we have the pressure to conform and to accept, uh, homosexual marriage. Uh, we have the promotion of, uh, an increasingly materialistic a world view and Christians are constantly attacked because they believe they don't believe in evolution. And if you are a student seeking to go to graduate school or medical school, and if it becomes known that you are a creationist and you believe in a young earth, you will not be admitted into graduate schools of science or medicine because the powers that be do not believe that you could accurately uh, interpret the data because you don't buy into their presuppositions. And I know of a number of cases personally where that has been, uh, that has been true. And so we have these pressures from the culture plus there, there are uh, constantly uh, legislations, laws that are being promoted, not necessarily all voted on or approved, but at least set out there that increasingly demonize evangelicals, uh, challenge uh, any expression of Christianity in the courts, and push for legislation to, uh, to make it uh, extremely difficult uh, for us to continue to express Christianity in the world around us. So there are a lot of parallels that we see between the time of Elijah and Elisha and our own time. And that's why the doctrines that are covered in these chapters are, are critical for us. And they all wrap around two or three major doctrines, but then within each different episode, each different miracle that we, that we see, we're going to identify certain other important uh, doctrines that we must also uh, that we must also explore. So to get into this chapters, we must address four things. Trust me, we'll never cover even the first one this morning. But first of all, we have to summarize what happens in these chapters, and I'm going to try to do that this morning. Second, we need to understand these events in light of the Mosaic Covenant themes of blessing and cursing. Only then can we properly interpret them and not end up with just a bunch of interesting little stories and narratives from a couple of thousand years ago. Third, we also need to understand these events in light of what God is doing specifically through the Elijah-Elisha ministry during this that time in history. And then last of all, we need to see these events in light of their uh, typology as they foreshadow key uh, doctrines, key events in the life of John the Baptist and Jesus. So let's start in Second Kings two thirteen and fourteen, and I'm going to go through six, the sixteen miracles of of Elisha, followed by seven points, and we'll do that rather briefly. But we have to have this flyover so we see the big picture, and then the details will make more sense, and then we'll. As, as I do come back up, look at the big, big picture again. These miracles are not just done, uh, in order to, uh, satisfy certain needs. That's a, a mistake that many people, uh, 
have when they come to the miracles of Jesus. Every single miracle in the life of Jesus was for a purpose to teach people about God and about his word and about his provision for us. The same thing is true about the miracles in the ministry ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Now, the first miracle we see in the ministry of Elisha is the parting of the Jordan River as he comes back from uh, the time when, he, when the transition occurs between Elijah and Elisha, and Elijah is taken in the whirlwind to heaven. The key players here in this first miracle are Elijah, who has just departed, Elisha, and the sons of the prophets from Jericho. When Elijah was taken to heaven, Elisha uh, tore his clothes into two pieces, indicating his grief. He takes up the mantle of Elijah, which was a symbol of his divine authority as a prophet. And as Elisha headed back, he was across the Jordan down south, just at the tip of the map there. He had crossed over to the east side of the Jordan, and as he crossed back over, he took the mantle of of Elijah that he had rolled up and he put it in the water of the Jordan and the Jordan then split God separated the waters and he crossed over the Jordan on dry land this was to demonstrate that Elijah had the same power the same spirit of God upon him that Elijah had had but I want you to notice something else it is a water miracle now, as we go through these miracles, you will notice that most of them have to do with water, oil, uh, grain, and they almost all have something to do with life. Those four things. Why those four things? Because God is continuing to demonstrate through these miracles that he, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the sovereign God of the universe. He is the God of life. He is the one who supplies that which is needed for life, water, oil, grain. It is not Baal. Baal was the false god of the Phoenicians, the idol that... Uh, that Jezebel and Ahab had promoted. Uh, Baal and the Asherim were the, were the god and goddesses of the fertility cult. And so this was the great attack that was coming against Israel during this time. And so God is demonstrating to the nation through these miracles that, again, just as he had with Elijah, that Baal and the Asherim are, are impotent. They can't do anything. It is he, Yahweh, who who supplies all that is needed for life. And so there is this contrast that is being set up here between the death culture of the fertility religions and the life that only God can provide. And I want to remind you, if we get a chance, we'll go there, but I want to remind you as we think about this that as the Israelites were about to enter into the promised land, uh, Moses is about to go up to the top of Mount Nebo where he will die and he will be taken to be with the Lord. And under the command of Joshua, the Israelites will enter the land and take uh, control of the land, conquer the Canaanites that live there. And as Moses gives his parting sermon, which is the book of Deuteronomy, he ends it by saying, Choose ye this day death or life. 
I set before you this day the options, death or life. Those are the options that God sets before every single human being. Are you going to choose the path of death or are you going to choose the path of life? Solomon in the Proverbs says there is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And so what we see in all of these 16 miracles that occur in Elisha's ministry is this emphasis on life, that God gives life, whereas the pagan culture of the northern kingdom of Israel is a culture of death. And we have to decide whether we are going to choose the path of obedience to God, which leads to life, or the path of of assimilation to the culture, which is the path of death. So Second Kings 2, 13, and 14 shows that Elisha has the same power of God, the life-giving Yahweh, and he is going to be the new prophetic leader in the in the northern kingdom. Verses 13 and 14 give him that confirmation. That's one of the roles of miracles is to uh, give that confirmation. The second miracle that occurs is in the same chapter in verses 19 through 22, which is takes place when he came to Jericho, and the men of the city came to him and said that the water was bad. The water wasn't potable. It was bitter. The ground was barren. This is a picture of what? It is a picture of death, the judgment of God upon the land and upon the water. It is a It is death. And so they come to Elisha, and Elisha puts salt in the water and says, Thus says the Lord, this is in verse 21, I have healed this water from it. There shall be no more death or barrenness. Death and barrenness is the result of sin and disobedience, and now there is going to be life there. The water is now purified. Again, this is a water miracle. Then we have another little event, and I I have been torn as to whether to classify this as a miracle or just a curse. There's three of these judgment curses that occur in this section, and because they do involve the interaction of God's power, they're not just uh, things that just circum- circumstantially happened. Uh, we, even though it's not a necessarily a positive thing, it is still something that indicates uh, a miracle, something uh, of divine intervention that has occurred. And as uh, as we studied, when Elisha left Jericho, he went up to Bethel, and there you have these uh, bunch of juvenile delinquents that came out, and obviously there was a large number of them because 42 of them, that's not all of them, but 42 of them get uh, pretty much torn up by these uh, two bears that come out. So there's a large group of these uh, juvenile delinquents. Uh, they're young. The word that's used there indicates uh, they, they're, they're more than just children. Children applies often to us a five- or six-year-old. They're, they're not quite young men yet. They're probably 10, 11, 12 years of age. They're ridiculing Elisha because they don't respect his authority. They don't recognize that he is... Uh, still has the authority of Elijah, and so he pronounces a curse on them in verse 24, and these two female bears then come out of the woods uh, coincidentally and uh, maul 42 of them. So that is a sign of judgment, that disobedience to God brings death and judgment, but in contrast, these other miracles emphasize obedience to God who brings life 
and blessing. So that's the third miracle is the cursing of the children there in verse 23, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Then we come to chapter uh, the, the fourth miracle, which is in chapter 3, which is the defeat of Moab. This is what we covered the last two Sundays when <clears throat> Jehoram, the king of, of Israel in the north, gets, allies himself with Jehoshaphat, the king of the south, and his uh, vassal, uh, the king of Edom, and they join together to attack the king of Moab, who is asserting his independence from the northern kingdom. And in that event, Elisha is going to be sought out for his counsel because as they circled around the southern part of the Dead Sea and all that dried-up desert area, they ran out of water and the animals and the soldiers were beginning to die of thirst. So they went to Elisha, and Elisha said, if you dig these trenches, then God will cause uh, them to be filled with water. And rather that, and that seems to have occurred through flash flooding that occurred elsewhere. Uh, the, the, the rain occurred elsewhere and then the waters came down, filled these, these trenches. So again, it's a miracle of water. Water comes at the command of God. He provides the water. And not only that, when the Moabites got, Moabite army got up the next morning and they looked at the, at the Israelite army, they, because of the refraction of the light through the water, it appeared to be blood. This is a, a miracle that God provides where it looks like it's blood. So they think that these three kings have fallen out with each other and the three armies have slaughtered each other. Now they're going to take advantage of the situation and charge in and uh, destroy them. And yet it's just a... Uh, they've been taken by surprise. God has deceived them, and they get, in turn, they get slaughtered by the armies of Judah, Israel, and Edom. And this is the fourth miracle of of, Eli, uh, of Elisha. And in that miracle, it again involves water, and it leads to the defeat of the Moabites. But it's not a a total victory because God is He's preserved the life of the armies of Israel, but He's not going to give them a total victory of conquest because that was not His will for them to take possession of Moab. One thing I did not get a chance to point out last week is that we do have an archaeological. Uh, artifact that uh, confirms and corroborates this episode in Scripture. This is the Moabite stone. It was originally discovered in 1868 by a German missionary named Klein who was on a visit, visit to the area of Moab when an Arab sheikh told him about this and took him to see it. And he saw this, this stone, and he didn't understand its significance or the writings uh, it's a stela that was uh, originally uh, written, set up to commemorate this particular battle by Misha, the king of Moab. It's uh, four feet high, two feet wide, but he knew it was something significant. So when he went back to Jerusalem and told others of his discoveries, the translator at the French uh, consulate uh, got real excited, knew it was something of value, so he sent a group of local Arabs to get the stone. Well, as they got there, quarrels erupted between the workers that he sent to retrieve the stone and the Arabs that were there, and they began to barter, and they couldn't reach a conclusion. And then they went back to, but but one of them managed to create a mold 
of the stone, which was fortunate. So he was able to get that back to Jerusalem, even though it broke into some pieces on the way. He was able to get that back to Jerusalem. It's in the museum at the Louvre today. And then as the Germans and the French began to uh, try to outbid each other to purchase this stone from the Arabs, the Arabs decided that this was something they could really milk for a lot of money. And then the ruler of Nablus in that area decided if it was that valuable, then he wanted it, so he was just going to, going to confiscate it. So the local uh, Arab tribesmen who had possession of it decided if they couldn't make any money off of it, nobody would. And so they heated it, and then they poured cold water on it, and it fragmented into pieces, which is what you see in the uh, in the picture. And then they distributed these pieces to granaries in the area as good luck charms. But fortunately, over the uh, decades following, they were able to retrieve most of the pieces and to put it back together. But that original, um, uh, that original form that was taken from the stone by the um, by one one of the first uh, Arabs that that uh, was sent there by the by the French gave us a pretty good uh, replica of the stone, and so it could be translated and its significance understood. But it's written by by Misha, and it confirms the account that we have in, in uh, 2 Kings 3. On the stone it begins, I am Misha, the son of Chemosh. You know, the king sees himself as the son of their deity. The king of Moab, the Dibonite. My father had reigned over Moab for 30 years, and I reigned after my father. And I made this high place for Chemosh and Karko because he has delivered me from all kings. That's this battle. And because he has made me triumph over all my enemies. As for Omri, the king of Israel. See, it's, it's not Omri. It's his grandson, but they're viewing the house of Omri. As for Omri, the king of Israel, and he humbled Moab for many years, for Chemosh was angry with his land. And his son, that would be Jehoram, his son, his grandson actually, reigned in his place. And he also said, I will oppress Moab. In my days he said so. But I triumphed over him and over his house, and Israel has perished. It has perished forever. See, there's a little propaganda there at the end. So that just confirms the episode that we read in Scripture in one of the most significant archaeological finds that we have, confirming and corroborating uh, scriptural events. Then we come to chapter 4. Chapter 4, we have our fifth, fifth miracle, which is the widow's, uh, the oil provided for the widow. The key people here are Elisha the woman's dead husband, uh, who is one of the sons of the prophet. He's a faithful believer. Uh, his widow, his two children, and their creditor. The husband is a faithful believer, but he had some debts, and he owed this creditor some things. And so now the creditor is coming to put pressure on the widow to pay up, and if you don't pay up, then we'll just uh, make your children slaves. It was an indentured form of servitude to pay off the debt. The widow is destitute. She has absolutely nothing except one jar of oil. So she comes to Elisha as the representative of God to provide a solution to her problem. Elisha tells her to gather all of her containers, everyone she can find, go throughout the whole village, get every container you can find, every little Tupperware jar, every little piece of pottery, everything, put it in your house, close the door, and then start filling those containers with the oil from the 
from the uh, pot that you have. And so she began to do that. God, of course, miraculously multiplied the oil, and she filled up every single container until there were no more containers that could be found. Elisha then told her to sell off enough to pay the debt and to keep the remainder in order to provide for the finances of her, her, her family. And so this is God, a miracle from God showing that, once again, God's grace is sufficient. He can solve the problems. It, his, his resources are infinite. It may be a time of economic depression, but God's, God's resources are not depressed. God can supply for all of us no matter what the external circumstances are. And so the emphasis is on blessing for those who are trusting in God and that there is life in the land even when uh, the believers, the people of God, are surrounded by judgment on the rank paganism that was there, the famine, and the death that was going on. So again, you see this life versus death uh, theme that there is life from God and death in paganism. Then the next episode in that chapter, in chapter 4, describes the Shunammite woman from verses 8 down to 37. Briefly, the key people here are Elisha, his servant Gehazi, uh, the Shunammite woman, her husband, who plays a minor role, and her son. And at the beginning, we see this woman who lives up in the Jezreel Valley, uh, sees Elisha coming back and forth before her house on a periodic basis. And so she tells her husband that we should honor the prophet of God, which is a very honorable thing to do. And she said, let's build a, a room in the house for him so that as he comes this way, he can stay with us. He has a place where it's quiet. He can pray and he can be uninterrupted. And so this is uh, the famous prophet's chamber of the Shunammite woman. And so in return for this, in her devotion to God and her grace orientation, Elisha told her that in about a year that she would have a child. Now this is, she and her husband are older like Abraham and Sarah, and it is not possible for them to uh, have children. And so again, this depicts God giving life where there is death, God is the source of life. And so the child is born, and the child uh, lives for some years, and then suddenly becomes ill and dies. And now the woman reacts, and she becomes somewhat angry and bitter towards Elisha. She said, I never asked for this child. Why did you give him to me only to take him away from me? And so Elisha sends uh, Gehazi, his servant, with his staff to uh, heal the child, that doesn't work, and Elisha comes and lies down upon the child, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands, and stretches himself out on the child, prays to God, and uh, the child then is brought back to life as he goes up uh, a second time to lie upon the child. This is in chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. Again, it emphasizes God is the source of, he's the solution to our problems. His grace is, is magnificent. His grace is sufficient and he has the power and the ability to solve all of our problems. Then we come to the, uh, next, let me see, that was the fifth. So now we come to the sixth, um, let me see. Sixth was a, is a Shunammite son. Seventh is the poison pot in um, point uh, in chapter four, verses thirty-eight to forty-one. 
And during the same famine that is going on throughout all this time, notice the backdrop for all of this is this economic depression and famine, and there, along with that would be death and disease. Uh, the prophet comes to Gilgal in verse 38, and there he sees the sons of the prophets. So you have the key players are Elisha and the sons of the prophets. And they're sitting there, and they're going to have dinner, and they're going to make a stew. And so they go out into the fields, and they get various uh, vegetables to put into the stew, along with some gourds from a wild vine. And they uh, put that into the stew, but it poisons the stew. And so they cry out to Elisha that there is death in the pot, verse 40, and uh, then in verse 41, he says, bring some flour. He puts some flour in the pot and says, serve it to the people that they may eat. So now it's going to provide for many. It's like the feeding of the 5,000 that we see in Jesus' Jesus' ministry. Again, God's grace is sufficient. It is uh, through trusting in God that there is life rather than, rather than death. And then we have the uh, eighth Miracle and the last two or three verses of the chapter, which is the multiplying of the loaves and the grain. Uh, a man comes from Baal Shalishah and he says, uh, uh, brings the man of God an offering, the first fruits of, of bread. And <clears throat> uh, Elisha says, well, take it and spread it out among the people and that, that they may all eat. And the, his servant, who's often a foil for Elisha. He's the original sidekick, somewhat humorous at times. And uh, Gehazi says, what? This isn't going to be enough to feed a 100 people. And Elisha says, give it to all the people that they may eat. God multiplies the loaves, and there's, uh, there's bread left over. Again, God is the source of life. His grace is abundant. His grace is free, and there is... Um, uh, there is death apart from God. Then in chapter 5, we have the healing of Naaman. Naaman is a Syrian. He's a Gentile. So it shows that God's blessing and his power isn't just limited to Israel, the land of Israel. He's not a local God. And Naaman, who is a Syrian commander and apparently a God-fearer and a believer, also has leprosy. So due to the uh, advice of a slave girl, a slave Israelite girl that has been captured in one of the many battles between the Syrians and the Israelites, uh, this young girl says, you need to go down to Israel. There's a prophet there who can heal you. And so he does that. He goes to the king, who is Jehoram, and verse seven and, and uh, verse six and seven, and says, uh, "I'm down here for you to heal me of leprosy." And of course, Jehoram just goes nuts. He said, "Oh no, I'm going to lose everything now because I can't heal this guy." But then Elisha hears of what has happened, and Elisha comes and tells Naaman to go wash in the Jordan seven times, and he will be healed. The man thinks this is silly and stupid at first, and he gets mad at Elisha and prepares to leave to go home, but his servant comes along and says, Now, uh, simmer down. If he had asked you to do something really hard, you would have done it. So just do something simple and uh, tr- trust in God. And so Naaman does, and he washes in the Jordan seven times and is healed. He returns to Elisha and praises God in verse 15. Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. And he is going to give a gift in, in gratitude, but Elisha says, no, you don't need to give me anything. In fact, I won't take anything. Just head home. And so he does. Uh, a few other things happen there, but they're incidental to the passage. We'll look at it when we get there. Then we come to the 10th episode, which is the floating axe head, when 
Uh, Elisha makes the axe head float as the workers are preparing uh, a place down by the Jordan, the sons of the prophets, and the axe head that they have borrowed flies off the handle, lands in the water, and sinks. And so Elisha comes along and uh, throws a stick in the water so that the axe, the iron will float. Again, these miracles confirm who he is. If they had lost the borrowed axe head, there would have been some penalty. It just, again, shows God's grace is sufficient. He handles all of our problems. Then we come to the uh, 11th miracle, which deals with the uh, uh, <clears throat> divine espionage, we might say, as the Syrians are constantly in battle with the northern kingdom of Israel. The king of Syria keeps getting outwitted by the king of Syria. He can't figure out how uh, how the king of, of Israel seems to know his every move. And so he begins to blame those in his uh, periphery that they're selling out to the enemy, that there's a spy among them. And they say, no, no, it's this prophet Elisha. He knows your every move because God tells him. And so you can't avoid the omniscience of God. And so then uh, the king of Syria is now really angry with Elisha, so he sends his whole army after Elisha. And Elisha uh, is down in a small village in, uh, in Israel, and uh, <clears throat> when they, he's down there with Gehazi, and they go out to... Um, uh, Gehazi goes out in the morning and sees that the city is surrounded with the, by this army and they have a, uh, a capture order for Elisha and he comes back and he's just panicky like most of us do. Oh, the circumstances of life are overwhelming me. I just can't handle it. And Elisha prays to God that the Lord would open his eyes, pull back the, as it were, the curtains between physical, material earth and the immaterial so that Gehazi can see the army of angels that stands between Elisha and the Syrian army, recognizing that the battle is the Lord's, it is not our battle, and that we need to trust in God and he's the one who gives us uh, the victory. And so as uh, they go through this, continue to go through this battle, we see this uh, next episode that occurs where they capture uh, capture a couple of the uh, uh, Syrians, and rather than kill them or punish them or put them in prison, the king of Israel asks Elisha, well, what shall we do with them? Should I kill them? And Elisha says, don't kill them. Put water and food before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. That's at the end of verse 22. In other words, deal with them in grace and kindness. Give them that which promotes life rather than death. And the result is that they go home and this particular action by the Syrians against them is shut down. Then in verse 24, there's another uh, military action against the northern kingdom from uh, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria. Uh, it's a time of great famine in the land again in verse 25, and where uh, it's <clears throat> where a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver. That's a lot for just a donkey's head to cook and make soup. That would be like a two or three months wages to, just to get a, to make a horse head soup or donkey head soup. And a fourth of a cob, that's about two ounces of dove droppings sold for five shekels. That would be dinner, horse head soup and <coughs> dove droppings. 
things were pretty rough, you think you have it rough. It was really tough. Not only that, but there's another situation where one woman comes. She had entered into a bargain with the neighbor lady and said, we're starving to death. We'll cook your son for dinner today and cook mine for dinner tomorrow. And so this other woman said, okay, so they killed her son, cooked him for dinner. And then when it came time to cook the uh, the woman who came up with the bargain first, came time to cook her son for dinner and eat him, uh, that woman wouldn't give up her son. It was really tough in the northern kingdom under divine discipline. And so the king went to Elisha, wanted to know what the solution would be, and God said, well, God is going to provide the answer now that the king had finally uh, begun to consult God. And so this is the uh, episode uh, of, this is our 13th. The 11th was the divine espionage. The 12th is the... Uh, Dothan episode in verses 11 to 23 where the uh, Syrians had captured the prophet and um, the soldiers are struck blind and Elisha uh, takes care of them and they go home. And then this is the 13th. This is the, the uh, famine and then a feast. And so in verse chapter 7, chapter 7, Elisha says to the king, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow at this time, Asiya, that's just a... Uh, that's like a couple of bushels of flour, shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, there's going to be abundance tomorrow. What happens uh, during the night, as similar to what will happen to the king of Assyria later on, is suddenly there's panic in the camp of the Syrian army, and they all flee, leaving everything behind, all of their food, all their provisions, dropping all their clothes and money bags on the way as they run back to Syria because they thought they heard the rumblings of an army. And so a couple of lepers who are out begging by the gate of, of the city uh, decide, well, we're going to die if we stay here. If we go into the city, they're going to kill us, so let's go uh, maybe surrender to the Syrians and maybe we'll get food from them. And they're the ones who discovered the empty camp. And so the, we see a tremendous example once again of God providing uh, escape for Israel, provides life rather than death. God is the source. His grace is more than sufficient. And then we come to another episode with the Shunammite woman. This is the 14th miracle where her land is restored to her. Uh, Elisha told her to leave, leave Israel during this time of famine, so she lived among the, the Philistines for seven years. When she returned, she found out that all of her land and property had been confiscated, and she went to the king, and the king found out who she was, that Elisha had uh, raised her son from the dead, and so he restores all of her land to her. That would be the 14th miracle. The 15th miracle involves the episode with Hazael, in the latter part of chapter 8, verses 7 through 15, uh, Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad is about to die, so he sends his second-in-command, Hazael, to seek out Elisha to find out if he's really going to die. Hazael goes to meet Elisha. Elisha says, you're going to be the next king, and he begins to weep. And he's weeping because God has revealed to Elisha that Hazael is going to uh, terribly persecute the northern kingdom, attack them, and 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 dozens and I mean hundreds will be killed and the violence and famine and everything that will come because of Hazael, and so Hazael then returns, tells uh, Ben Hadad that he's going to live, and then comes in and carries waterboarding to its fullest extent and kills him. 
By that I mean he soaked a towel in water and held it over Ben-Hadad's face until he drowned. Uh, I guess that would be the original waterboarding, except it went much further than waterboarding does. So that is, uh, th- that is that episode. And then the last, the last miracle, that was number uh, 15. And then the last miracle is when, number 16, after Elisha dies in chapter 13, uh, a man who is dead is thrown into the grave with him, and his because of Elisha's dead bones there, a miracle occurs, and the man comes back to life and comes out of the grave. Once again, God gives life where there is death. What is taught in all of this is the doctrine of grace. Notice the emphasis on providing the resources of life, grain, water, oil. God's grace is more than sufficient. He is the source of life. I want you to turn with me as we close to one passage in the Old Testament and then one in the New. New, And we'll see how all these things get tied together. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Moses says in his closing remarks to Israel, See, I have set before you today life and good, death, and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. What is the key to life and good? It is following the Lord, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 17, he says, But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey his voice, and that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. You see, what is happening in with Elijah and Elisha is the outworking of that principle. Elisha is demonstrating through all of these miracles, through all of these visual training aids, that God is the source of life. He's still the source of life. This is the background for understanding the key, uh, the key message that will come across in the first three chapters of the Gospel of John. Listen to this, this theme that we see here. In beginning in about John 3:16, it's gone through the whole first three chapters, but this is where it comes to a sort of a conclusion in this section, where we read, starting in verse 16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life." The choice is death or life. The choice is your way or God's way, your way or the only way, which is Jesus. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Same issue, life or death. This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, and that they have been done in God. And then we skip down to the end, the last verse, John 3:36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. The message from Scripture is clear from Genesis to Revelation. Choose life or choose death. The path of life is to obey God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Jesus said, I came not to give life, but to give it abundantly. The path to life is only through the Lord Jesus Christ, both in terms of salvation and then in terms of living out the Christian life. Those who fail in disobedience follow the path of death and judgment and discipline. The only way to survive, whatever the circumstances may be, whether it's economic collapse, whether it is the pressure of society to conform to their paganism, or whether it's surviving overt persecution, is to recognize the sufficiency of God's grace. He will provide the answer for everything. He can give Uh, from his abundant resources, all that is necessary for life today, just as he did in the Old Testament. It might not be as overtly miraculous, but he will still sustain us with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to be reminded of your power, to be reminded of your ability. You are omnipotent. You are omniscient. You know all of our circumstances, all of our situations, and you are able to sustain us. In your grace, you want to sustain us. The issue is, what is our choice? Will we choose life or death? Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who has never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins that you might have eternal life. All that is necessary is for you to trust in Jesus Christ, trust in his death, believe that he died on the cross for your sins, and that free gift of eternal life is yours. And that gift can never be lost. It can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we have learned today, that we may continue to press forward in our spiritual growth that you might be glorified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.